Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we're, we're going, going round Springfield. Springfield. <laughs> And let's get to our guest <laughs> to, to save us with his smarts. And what an accomplished man. <laughs> He's a writer from, you know, you love it, The Simpsons, co-creator or creator, he'll correct me, of uh, the hit Netflix show F is for Family. <laughs> Please welcome Mike Price. Hi. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. Hey. We've been better, but we're happy that you're here. <laughs> Yes, yes, we've all been better. Yeah. It'd be weird if I was thriving now. This is the best I've ever been. I don't know. In a way, I feel like I am, but we'll get to it later. Julia, in your introduction, I did think that maybe we would have segued into one of Mike's credits, which is a TV show called Smart Guy, uh, which we certainly could use. (laughs) We could use Uh, Smart Guy right now to help us out. Yes. Uh, oh my god if if yeah the next person in charge of the who was smart guy (laughs) not even the actor's name i would love it you mean taj maori (laughs) yes taj maori brother of uh of the uh, maori twins t and tamara t and tamara (laughs) yes yes indeed well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on to this new version of our show. And for any listeners who are new to this version of our podcast, we used to have a very fun Simpsons podcast called Everything's Coming Up Simpsons, where we talked about our guests' favorite episode of The Simpsons that had not been picked yet. We did a lot of those. And at a certain point, people are fighting over the same favorites. And, you know, we wanted to let people who have worked on the show kind of talk to us about, you know, how did they get there? And we kind of want to humanize uh these heroes of of so many of ours you know the idea of being a simpsons writer especially if you're not necessarily in the industry of tv writing you know they they just are superheroes to you how did they wake up so funny and and work on this the best show of all time and how did they create their side projects that then ended up being just as you know amazing and funny um and so that's what this show is so we are very excited and if you haven't listened to our old podcast make sure to listen to the episode we did with mike because that was so much fun Yeah, that was great. So, uh, Mike, we obviously had uh, the privilege of talking to you before, and we talked a little bit about F is for family. um, And uh, I I would really love to get into uh, all of um, the thoughts and feelings about the show from its, you know, the origin to just what it became. But if you don't mind, I would love to start at the beginning of your career and maybe some of the moments that led into TV writing in the first place. So can you walk us through some of the earliest signs or, you know, life events that led to you knowing that you wanted to pursue comedy or writing in any way? Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up in New Jersey at a time, uh, a pre-cable time when uh, there were three TV stations, three network TV stations in uh, the New York, New Jersey area and four other ones that were like local stations. And uh, I was just always into TV. <laughs> I, can't, I, I mean, I have a nice family, a mom and dad and three brothers, and we would have fun and do stuff. But I just totally gravitated to watching TV, especially comedy, especially old movies and, and the uh, the local channels in New York, uh, Channel 5, uh, 9 and 11, 
would just show old, old movies like the Marx Brothers and W.C. Oh, Fields and Abbott and Costello and um, even like not the greatest ones, but there were these there were these uh, real low budget movies called the Bowery Boys. That I, got into. <laughs> um, I watched everything. Old reruns and even and uh, you know which which also helped lead to uh, working animation later, cartoons. So uh, like Bugs Bunny cartoons and uh, and to a lesser degree like Tom and Jerry and other things like that. But uh, and I discovered that I have a I have a kind of an encyclopedic memory of things. And, and so uh, even as a, as a fairly young kid, I got into learning the names of everybody. So I would watch like these Bugs Bunny cartoons and I could recognize like a Chuck Jones cartoon from a Frizz Freeling cartoon from a Robert <laughs> McKimson cartoon from a Tex Avery, uh, <laughs> Bob Clampett, you know, so I would, I'd say, Oh, that's a Chuck Jones, whatever. Or Hanna Barbera. And I just got into it all. And, and, you know, I just watched TV all the time and, and loved it and loved comedy, especially all the way through high school. And by the time I was, uh, you know, towards the end of high school, I got into, that was when Monty Python first started coming on, uh, on PBS, the PBS station in New York. And they just blew my mind. They were so great. And it was the kind of thing like the next day at school, like I was in the <laughs> band, I was kind of like a band geek and, you know, and I did plays. So we would all just talk about, did you see Monty Python last night and all that? And, and this was when Second City, uh, SCTV and Saturday Night Live were first starting to become a big deal. So I knew all about it, I, I, but I didn't know what, how, that, how that turned into a thing, you know. So I remember the one thing, I, first thing I ever did that was sort of writing was that I believe it was like during the Christmas vacation of maybe like my freshman year of college. I went to college in New Jersey and I had nothing to do. And, and uh, a book had just come out. It was a companion book to Saturday Night Live that I still have. I got it later. Uh, I mean, I had the original version I, uh, that I had all those years ago. I lost, but I, I found it again on eBay and got it. But it was a book. It was sort of like a companion book to Saturday Night Live, and it reprinted the scripts of, of some of the, the best sketches in like wow. in script format. Uh, you can find it. It's still on there. And, and the, the cover of the book looked like a script cover. And anyway, and so it had all these sketches, and it was like written by Al Franken, whatever, and Alan Bell, and it was like, so I was like, this is, how, this is what a script looks like. So I decided to try my hand and I got like a, my crappy typewriter I had and I wrote some <laughs> bad sketches. Can't remember them. One of them was a, a play on the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was called <laughs> Lunch Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, and it was about alien, aliens coming to a diner. And anyway, uh, and then later on, they used that same pun on Saturday Night Live, like, is it just a throwaway joke, like, lunch encounters of the third kind? It's like, oh, I, I was like, oh, I thought of that. You know? So I thought of, like, I can think of things that are funny. Um, and you promptly sued them. That's right. right. I took them to court. <laughs> that's great. You got to sue your heroes first. That's right. Uh, but still all through college, you know, I didn't know what, to, what that meant or how, even though, like, it, I... I lived like less than an hour from New York City and, you know, but I didn't know like how, how you did this. And so I went all the way through college as a theater major. Uh, I did what so many people do after college is that I didn't, wasn't ready to move on and like be an adult. So I went to graduate school for theater at Tulane University in New Orleans. 
Is that what so many of us do? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and then I had to move back in with my parents and have help uh, and fail. Well, I didn't. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. So I was like, I'm going to find some way to keep going to college because I, I love college. So I went to graduate school for theater, and, and I got out with a master's degree, an MFA degree in directing wow. for the theater which I really enjoyed. But again, still here I am in my mid twenties and like, I don't know what I'm going to do. How is this going to be a thing? By then I was back living with my parents again. And, uh, I, I got out, I had a, a brief first marriage that didn't work out with a, a, a girl I knew from, from college. And, and I was sort of floundering and, and I had all these crazy jobs. I took a job. I, I shouldn't have done this, but like when I went to college, my parents, said, okay, we'll pay for you to be a theater major in college, but we insist that you also learn a trade, you know, basically, which is like to become a teacher. So I also minored in like teacher certification to have like something to fall back on, as they say. So I did that and I got a job as a teacher in Irvington, New Jersey, which is a suburb of Newark, New Jersey, which was a really rough kind of inner city place, you know, uh, and I'm, you know, you can't see me, but, uh, you know, I'm probably like one of the whitest people that has ever lived, you know, <laughs> very tall, white guy, dorky looking guy. Back in those days, I had these big glasses and I went to this school that was almost probably 80% African-American and, and, and they were really cool kids. And, and it was like, this was like, this is like the mid eighties now when like hip hop and rap are just exploding. And, uh, and I did, I was so out of my league. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really do it for the right reason to become a teacher. I did it because I needed a job and, and I was a, just a terrible, terrible English teacher at this high school. By that point, like two years later, uh, uh you know, I wasn't happy that my, this early marriage I had ended and I was sort of at the end of my rope and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I started getting, I took a job, as a proofreader at a law firm in New York City, because I knew that I read about that some pe people who are actors sometimes do that. So I was like, all right, I can do that. So I got that job. And the thing that saved me was that uh, a really good friend of mine from school had started doing improv uh, sketch comedy. And he started taking classes with a, with a place in New York called Gotham City Improv, which was basically the New York version of the Groundlings uh, out mm -hmm. here. And um, I went to see him in his show and he was really funny. And I remember that I was really into learning about improv many years earlier. I read a book about Second City and and uh, all that. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So I, I kept this job working at a law firm, but I started taking these classes at the uh, Gotham City, which turned into basically teaching you how to write because it was all it was all kind of a training academy to get you into their show. And if you've ever been to a Groundlings show, it's very heavily on sketches. There's some improv, but it's not like this is many years ago, too, where before the kind of like UCB style um, improv became the main thing, which is what it is now, which is more free form and it's called the Herald and, you know, which is really exciting and fun. But this was more kind of a, a structured kind of improv thing, but it was really about writing SNL style sketches. So again, I'm back to like SNL again type stuff. And uh, anyway, these classes would teach you, you do like an improv 
exercise or, you know, there's all kinds of different improv games to play like freeze tag or whatever and different things. <laughs> and, and you do it and maybe something funny would come out of it that you hadn't expected. And then the teacher would say, okay, that was a really funny bit or that character you came up with. Now go home and write a, write a scene for that character, or write a monologue for that character mm. and come back to the next class, you know, with a written monologue or, or take that idea that became like a one minute thing and turned into a sketch so that's how you learn to sort of take an idea that was kind of kind of spontaneous and then write it up so i started doing that and i really enjoyed it i felt like i was funny and the other people in the class thought i was funny and so i eventually went through four levels of this class you know which you you pay good money for it and by the end of it, I got into the performing company of Gotham City Improv. At the same time, I met a, a friend who became kind of a, my first writing partner uh, and performing partner. And she and I, we really hit it off. We had a very similar outlook, similar style, I guess. And we wrote a bunch of sketches together about people who were either dating or in a relationship. And uh, those all went over really well. And so... Um, we decided to sort of branch off on our own while staying in the main company of the Gotham City show. We wrote our own show, which is like a two-person show with a style somewhat based on, you know, emulating the greatest two-person man-woman comedy team of all time, you know, uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Mm. Um, and we weren't even, we couldn't even touch them, but, you know, we, <laughs> we thought we would be like them. So we did that. And by this point, we're now in New York doing it in New York. And, and she was very focused on a showbiz career. And I was sort of along for the ride. And uh, she had some contacts and she got some people to come see us. And they thought we were good and they thought we were funny. And uh, they said, you should come out to L.A. because that's where all the TV work is. And and uh, by this point, I was working at this law firm. And uh, now I was working midnight shift from like midnight to eight every day. Uh, and it saved some money and it was like, it's now or never, we're going to do it. So we had like the phone number of a couple of people, a manager and, uh, you know, a lead on some people. And we just basically sold everything, got in a car and drove out to LA. Wow. <laughs> yeah. with like, we're going to do it, you know, and here we go. <laughs> and, uh, my parents thought I was a little crazy and, <laughs> but we did, you know, so we got out here, we had this contact this agent who helped us, uh, I mean, the manager helped us get an agent and the agent helped us get a showcase. Uh, we played our show around a little bit, some small, some small rooms. And this agent helped us get a big showcase at the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard. And we had three nights at the comedy store in the big, the big main room at the comedy store, kind of four walled in by this agency, by APA, our agency at the time. And uh, it was so exciting and so heady and, and people came to see us and he got people from every network and every studio to come see us. And we had honed our show to like within like a, a fraction of a, a second of timing and we had done it like a hundred times and we killed and we were so funny and everybody loved us. And it was so exciting. And people came back afterwards and, and the guy who was the head of the agency was saying like, you kids are wonderful. I love you kids. You know, and we thought like, <clears throat> we thought like, here we go, here we go. You know, we're the next, we're the next, whatever, you know? So the, the first thing we should have realized we known was we were in trouble was that the very wonderful man who we met once, who was like the head of the agency who loved us. Like a week after we saw our show, he died. <laughs> he died oh, of a massive oh heart attack. So, <laughs> so we're like, uh-oh. He was a very nice man, but he was gone. But we still had an agent who was helping us out. And he got us all these meetings. And we went to every studio. We went to Castle Rock. We went to Fox. We went to Paramount. We went to NBC. 
And at every single place we went, they all wanted to, they said like, your show was so funny. It was so great. And we're like, okay. And here's, here's where you write us a check, you know, whatever, make us TV stars. (laughs) And they were like, what else have you got? What are your sitcom ideas? And we had, we had none. (laughs) And our agent could have helped us out by saying, they're going to ask for sitcom ideas. You should have them, you know, but we didn't have them at all. (laughs) We're like, like that pretty much. And then we're like, uh, well, we'll come back. We'll come back with some. And they said, okay. And then we, we came up with like really lame, a really lame, lame, lame idea about a a sitcom set at a, a health club at like a gym, you know, and we came back and pitched it and it just died in the room. And that was pretty much it. It was literally like, okay, thank you. And like your career is now over. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, we kind of hit our wall, hit the wall. And my partner, she was a much better performer than me. She was much more of a commercial looking performer and she liked the acting more than the writing. And I liked the writing more than the acting. So we, sort of went our separate ways and um mm-hmm. and i just then hunkered down and it's like okay i am not going back to new jersey you know with my tail between my legs saying it didn't work out i'm here now i'm gonna figure this out and i just sat there and i had crazy more more crazy jobs i did like phone work and um like surveys. What do you mean by phone work? Uh, uh, like, you <laughs> wait, know, wait. yeah, no, not that kind of, not that kind of phone work. Yeah. Everything but that. I mean, you know, Everything I'm not judging. I'm just no, saying. No, no, no. I know. Everything but that. But it was, it was almost as, it was worse than that because the one job I had was, was, uh, I only had it for like two days because I was bad at it and I felt really dirty doing it, which was this thing where you would call, it was a, like a boiler room where you would call various offices and pretend to be a guy from the shipping department of this company that shipped out toner for fax machines and Xerox machines. And you'd say, yeah, hi, it's me. I'm calling from the shipping department of this, of this thing. And we, we had a shipment of toner for your, for your copier. Uh, and somehow it got kicked back to us. I think we had the wrong address and you knew the address of the place was like one, two, three, eight, you know, uh, Wilshire Boulevard. And you go, your address is, one two three nine Wilshire Boulevard, right? And they go, no, it's one two three eight. And go, oh, okay, I get it. Well, I'll send this out to you. And then you'd say, like, just want to make sure I got the right kind of stuff. Like, what kind of machine do you have again? And they'd say, uh, you know, Xerox nine eighty three. And then you have a book in front of you, and you'd very quickly look up Xerox nine eighty three, and it takes a certain kind of toner. And you'd say, okay, that's great because we're gonna send, we're gonna, we'll send that shipment back out to you. It was, it was, you know. It was 15 cartons of blah, 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 this, you know, and then the whole idea was to get them to say, oh, okay, yes, that's right. And then you'd send it and then you'd bill them for it. So like, it was all a big scam. <laughs> all oh and and so there it's were, like the Columbia House CD of yeah right exactly toners. exactly exactly <laughs> it was all a big scam and you had to have that kind of confidence to do it and get away with it and I was terrible at it and there was another guy like the next table over who was like selling selling you know all the time and I hated it and it was just really awful. So I didn't do that. I drove a taxi cab. I did everything uh, all the while writing spec scripts. So luckily I saw the agent and then, um, you know, after about another year and a half of this, of doing all this, I finally got through my agent, a, a meeting for a very low budget Saturday Night Live type show that was called the news with a Z N E W Z. And it was going to be syndicated on like local stations. Uh, and it aired right after the very first John Stewart had a show that was, he had a show on MTV first 
And then he had a show called the John Stewart show, which was like a late night talk show that was syndicated on local stations. And we were on either right before John Stewart or right after John Stewart with our show. And uh, I had this meeting with this guy. He was producing it. His name was Michael Wilson and he had worked on Saturday Night Live and he basically hired me and based on my sketches that I had written. And that was my first job was on this show. It was not a whole lot of money, but to me it was like, more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Oh and, my God. Uh, yeah. it was... and it doesn't matter because you've got your foot in the door. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it was super exciting. And we did the show and we kind of, and it, the crazy thing was it was a half an hour show that aired five nights a week. So they needed like basically half an hour of, of sketch comedy, you know, whatever we had, we ended up writing like 70 episodes of it. And so everything we wrote, like we just wrote like crazy and like, it was really fun. It's super exciting. I got to act in a few bits <laughs> and uh, it didn't last super long. It, the ratings weren't great. It ended in a crazy way uh, with one of the producers, not Michael, but this other producer was discovered to have been stealing money <laughs> from the show. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> I know. He was using the money, the budget to pay his American express card or something. So anyway, <laughs> the show got canceled and, but, but what happened was, uh, one of the guys on the show was a, a great writer named David Litt, who, um, had also gotten a job on a Nickelodeon, uh, animated show called Real Monsters or Ah, Real Monsters. Oh, I love that. And he's show. like, oh, yeah. And he said, he said, we need, oh, thanks. He said, we need some freelancers on that. Do you want to, you want to try out for that? And I said, sure. So they hired me to do a couple episodes of that. And then that turned into later, uh, I went on staff of there and, um, and then David Litt went on to co-create the King of Queens with wow. a guy named Michael Whitehorn, and he had a huge career. And so, you know, it just one thing led to another. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, I'm still writing specs. I'm still trying to get, you know, more work and, you know, primetime stuff. And I wrote a bunch of specs and I wrote a spec for uh, news radio that Aww. got seen by somebody at Disney. And the person at Disney, they were putting together a new show. It is like now 1996. Uh, and it was a show on UPN called Homeboys in Outer Space. Uh, and I went in for a meeting on that. And uh, I got hired for that, thank God, by another great, wonderful guy named Eric Van Lowe, who created that show. And um, and while on that show, here's, here's where The Simpsons comes in. While on that show, uh, Al Jean and Mike Reese uh, were... Uh, had briefly left the Simpsons because they had gotten an overall deal development deal at Disney and uh, they were developing shows. And part of the deal was that they had to work on other shows that were already on the air while they were developing. So they worked one or two days a week on homeboys in outer space. And I got to meet them there oh, and wow. I got to know them and they liked me. And then they created a show the very next year that was called teen angel, teen angel. that was on ABC. I love it. Uh, I that love was a another, it's another top five. You don't even know, Mike, your IMDb is like hit after hit for young Julia Prescott. And also uh, you can listen to the episodes with Al Jean. He's baffled that I, like Teen Angel. <laughs> like at all, but then as much as I do. I think I like that show even more than Alan might do. But uh it was so fun and there were great writers. There were great writers on that show, like a great staff and a guy a guy who was just starting his career on that show. Uh he had just come out of the Warner Brothers or I'm sorry, Disney, I guess, Disney writers program. Got him Saladin Patterson, who now is the showrunner of that show called Dave on FX that just came out. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, he's a wonderful guy. He and I have stayed close friends, and he's now had a giant career. And everyone from that show has gone on to do great things. The guy that this guy named Jim Patterson was a was a writer's assistant on that show. He uh, co-created that show called The Ranch on Netflix um, with Ashton Kutcher, and he worked on yeah, Two yeah. and a Half Men for. Everybody went on to have great things. Um, and then after Teen Angel only lasted a season, I got a couple other things. I worked on the PJs with Eddie Murphy, and Alan Mike worked on that too. And then Alan Mike went back to the Simpsons, and then Al took over to become like the. Uh, uh, you know, Mike kind of semi-retired. So Al became the main showrunner on the Simpsons. And I was working on another show with the show with Joan Cusack called what about Joan? Uh, we were working in Chicago and that show was struggling in the ratings and it was not going well. Mm. And it was difficult to be away because we were working in Chicago, but my family was here in LA and I got a call from Al Jean one night and he said like, uh, you know, uh, we're starting a new season at The Simpsons, and some people have left, and there's an opening at The Simpsons if you're available. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. And because uh, <laughs> this show was already teetering on the edge, I said, I think this show is going to get canceled soon. He's like, well, if it does, let me know. So I started praying for the show to get canceled, <laughs> which it did. Which I'm it, sure you weren't the only one. No, yeah. no, which it mercifully did. And uh, and I called Al and he goes, OK, come, you know, so then that was almost 20 years ago. That was in December uh, or uh, October, wow. October of 2001. And I started on The Simpsons in December of 2001. And there you have it. What was it like finally coming home to the Simpsons, I guess, like walking through that victory V. <laughs> wow. I was so intimidated. I remember when the Simpsons first came on, this was, you know, in 1987 when it was on the shorts on the Tracy Ullman show. So I remember seeing it then. And I knew, I knew Matt Groening's work a little bit from uh, life in hell. And I'd seen the life in hell comics and everything. So I was like, Oh, I recognized Matt Groening's work. And I thought it was all funny. And then I remember when I was in that improv group, a bunch of us were doing our improv stuff and we all went over to a, a friend's house and we watched the Simpsons, uh, the very first season of the Simpsons on his TV in his house. And everyone was like, this is the greatest show. This is incredible how great this is. And I believe it was the one, the first one I ever saw that was the first regular Simpsons episode was the one, I think it's called Bart's dog gets an F yes. with Tracy Ullman as mm -hmm. the, uh, as the teacher at the uh, obedience school for Santa's little helper and um, it was great, of course. And like, you know, and everyone was writing Simpson specs. Even then they were starting to write Simpson specs. So then here to be now like 10 or 11 years later and to be on the staff of the show was unbelievable to me. Uh, it was super intimidating because I walked in the first day and Al was there and, uh, you know, I knew Al a little bit, of course. But I walked into the room with uh, these people whose names I'd seen. George Meyer and John Vitti wasn't full-time on the staff then, but, um, or John Swartzwelder wasn't full-time on the staff, but they were all around and still working on the show and like Ian Maxtone Graham and wow. these people who uh, I knew from TV and who knew their shows. And so suddenly I was in a room with them and, and I was incredibly intimidated and uh, very afraid uh, because I, I had watched the show. I knew the show, but I didn't watch it every single week, you know, and, and the only way to watch shows that weren't on anymore was to watch the reruns, you know, in local stations. And there were some VHS tapes around. So there was, I had a huge hole in a lot of my knowledge of some of the characters. And my very first day we were working on the show that's called uh, Barting Over. It's the one with uh, Tony Hawk. Oh my God. Yes. Sue's home <laughs> for emancipation. I was just talking about this. 
That's a great episode. And we're it's working so on it. And I was in the room and, and I'm trying to contribute, but also trying to learn. And Ian is running the room, Ian Maxstone Graham. And we were writing the scene, working on the scene where Bart is in, takes Homer to court. And they were like, okay, well, well, who's, who's going to be the lawyers? And of course, sadly, you know, uh, Phil Hartman uh, was no longer mm. with us. So he, there was no more Lionel Hutz. So it was like, well, who could be the lawyer? And there, so someone pitched um, Gil and I didn't <laughs> know who Gil was. So I was like, okay, but I, just, I kept quiet. You know, I just kept quiet. Right. They're like, oh, how about Gil for Gil for Homer's lawyer? And they're like, oh, that's now that's good. Okay. It'll be Gil. But I had no clue who Gil was. <laughs> uh, and then, and then someone said, well, who could be the lawyer for um, Bart? And someone said, oh, what if it was Burns's lawyer? And Burns's lawyer is the term that we use for that blue haired guy yeah. who looks lawyer. like Roy Cohn. Right. <laughs> they call him blue haired lawyer on like, unlike action figures and stuff like that. But the technical term for him in scripts is Burns's lawyer. You uh, heard it here he first. Mr. Burns's lawyer. <laughs> That's right. So in his very first appearance, he was, he was a lawyer for Mr. Burns. So he's just called Burns's lawyer. Even to this day, we call Burns's lawyer, but I didn't know that. So, um, so Ian says, well, how about Burns's lawyer? And uh, I said, um, why would, why would Mr. Burns's lawyer represent Bart? And he goes, we just call him Burns' lawyer like that. You know, you just look, I'm like, shut up, you idiot. Uh, and so I didn't speak again for a while after that. Oh, but, no. Uh, so it took me a while. It took me a while to sort of learn everybody, learn the characters, to learn the show. And it took me a while to even get a, a story through. It took me over a year to get a story through. Uh, but then, then I started to feel feel uh, at home and, and feel good about it and eventually... I felt like one of the guys. That's amazing. You know, we're going to take a quick break, but then I want to do uh, what will feel like therapy uh, ask questions. <laughs> and yes. we're going to have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> hey, I'm Janet Varney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, oh, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. Judge John Hodgman won a Webby in the comedy podcast category. After 10 years of production... Judge John Hodgman has finally won the Susan Lucci of the Webbies. What is Judge John Hodgman? Comedy writer and television personality John Hodgman settles disputes between friends, family, co-workers, partners, and more. Is Machine Gun a robot? Should a grown adult tell his parents about his tattoos? Should a family be compelled to wear matching outfits on vacation? Listen to Judge John Hodgman to find out the answers to these age-old disputes and more. If you haven't listened to Judge John Hodgman, now is a great time to start. Judge John Hodgman is available on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get your podcasts.
And we're back. All right. So, Mike, listening to your kind of upward mobility, listening to the trajectory of your success, it feels a lot like why why we want to have this podcast in the first place. You know, there's an idea that people are successful or they're not, and that they kind of wake up one day and suddenly everything is there because, you know, you don't really know who anybody is until they've succeeded. And to hear that you had, you know, what are essentially known as like normal jobs throughout, having already had this cool opportunity and uh, having a master's degree and like really having already worked and had uh, successes, the fact that you still, for any amount of time, lived with your parents and 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 did all these things, um, I think really makes you a more interesting person and most likely a better writer. Can you talk to us about some of the things that you felt and learned from the grind? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing I learned, and I, I didn't plan on learning this, was that I had kind of boxed myself into a corner where I really, even though, you know, I've, I had two degrees, two college degrees from Montclair State uh, College, now called Montclair State University, New Jersey, and a master's degree from Tulane University. I felt like I had zero skills that would get me anything except, you know, I don't know, the lowliest job, uh, <laughs> except for except for a knowledge of TV and how to be funny, I guess. You know, so uh, when I came out here to L.A. with the desire to make something happen here, I really had nothing else to fall back on. You know, so so it was literally I was going to make it or I wasn't. And if I didn't, I don't know what I would do. You know, I, I had I had like thoughts of like, I don't know, like, I guess I could always get a job at the post office or, you know, or something like <laughs> that, anymore. but it wasn't like, it wasn't, it, it, yeah, right. Yeah, really. Uh, but it wasn't like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the Simpsons, you know, you know, they talk about, you know, the Harvard guys and all that stuff, but some of them were mathematicians and some of them were lawyers already. And some of them were pre-med and, uh, you know, Matt Warburton invented a stent, you know, oh <laughs> for the heart, you know, that kind of thing. You know, so, uh, you know, they could, oh, I guess I could always go back and be a math professor. I could always go back and be a lawyer, but I, I couldn't go back and be in anything. I guess I could go back and be a proofreader, a law firm, but, but it was really like, it was like, it was going to be all or nothing. So I think sometimes people ask me like, what do you, what does it take? You know? And I think I got very, you know, uh, it was a combination for me of, uh, you know, of, of having talent, of, of being funny, uh, you know, but also of just of persistence and, and literally like having no other option, you know, because I put up with a lot of a lot of rejection, a lot of uh, failure, a lot of things that didn't work out. And it was like, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, you know, so I think that's one thing I learned. And then once I get, did get in, the one thing I also awful to also tell people is that especially f to work in comedy a sitcom or a comedy writer's room is you have to be able to collaborate and get along with everybody else. So I think that it also helped that I had a personality that was sort of uh, agreeable in that way. <laughs> and that, um, uh, because, because you, it's all about, it's all about the collaboration. That, that's where I think that also, you know, doing that training at uh, Gotham city improv, that imp improv style or grounding style training was the best training ground for, um, for this kind of work. So I often tell Absolutely. people who are interested in doing this, uh, you know, go take an improv class, you know, go to UCB or whatever, you know, go to Groundlings because it's all about 
it's all about like, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but like, yes, ending. And it's all about that, about like taking what someone else said in the room and building on it and, you know, and not, not shooting it down, not denying it. All the rules that they say are all the rules of improv are also the rules of like working in a comedy writer's room. And being a nice person. <laughs> like I feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be a nice person. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just being able to not shoot people down and to find what's good and whatever idiotic thing somebody says is a good life trait, even if you're not trying to make it as a writer, I would say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. But there's so many people you'll see in writer's rooms who sometimes will be the ones that don't last are the ones that say like, you know, this doesn't work for me. This isn't good. But don't have but then don't have the fix. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's I know it's verboten to give a note without a fix. Uh, I'm so glad that you are emphasizing, you know, that collaborative uh, part of being able to work in a writer's room, because I think that so many people, and I think it's as true as it was 20 years ago as it is today, shockingly, so many people, especially, you know, those that were told you're going to be the next big thing, or you're, you know, such a great writer from a young age, they get this tremendous ego and think that like, it's all up to their voice, their distinct voice. And sure, like their distinct voice can like, you know, be put into a script that then gets them the job. But then once you get into a TV writer's room, it's not about your distinct voice anymore. It's about whatever the voice of the show is, and how you like fit into that and what instrument you play in that band. And maybe you're not playing the joke machine that's happening right next to you. Maybe you're more story, maybe you're, you're more this, like, I just think that 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 emphasis on that collaboration is really important to tell people constantly. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, especially that's the only kind of work I've really ever done, you know, is working on as a, a member of a staff. But it's it's so important because ultimately you just want to go home and get 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 done and move on and get, get the show out. You know, so the, the people who tend to fight or I had, I had really I had to really. Work on that at first because I, I really work really intensely on my scripts when I when I get sent off to write a script for um, for a show I'm on staff for or if it's maybe my own thing if I'm writing a pilot or something. So I'll work really really hard and really sweat over every moment of it and and I've thought it all through and uh, I'll write draft after draft after draft. And so for my very first show for that Homeboys in Outer Space, I remember like having my first episode that I had to write and. Um, you know, they give you some time to go off like a week or so, or, you know, uh, I forget what it was then on the Simpsons. It's about two weeks. You get to just go home and work for two weeks and then come in with a draft. So I did that and I was up the nut till the night before till like all hours finishing it and proofing it and turning it in. And I turned it in and then they passed it out to all the other writers on the staff and the senior producers. And I can hear them in their offices, reading it and chuckling and laughing. And I was sitting there like getting so excited and thinking, yeah, yeah, I did a good job. And uh, and they came out afterwards and one of the guys uh, said, uh, he goes, great job, great job. This is going to make the rewrite so easy. And I was like, rewrite? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean rewrite? But uh, but then they started rewriting it and I'm in there and like I had to fight the urge to say, uh, well, the reason for that joke is this or that you're missing the point or whatever, all that stuff. I really had to bite my tongue and just sort of let let it go and, and like give in to the wisdom of the room and, and ultimately made it much better, which is what it does. But you have to, the people who fight or like to say like, uh, no, no, uh, can we go back to what I had? Those are the people that don't get asked back 
you know, the and, next and, season. Yeah, and that must be uh, difficult at times. You know, I, I think that it's uh, something that you really have to practice because your ego is – yeah. It's not going to change without your changing it, you know, and it's very yeah, natural it, to be defensive and, and it's, and it's hard to not uh, do that, but it's going to help right. everything. Mm-hmm. Because it's a weird thing. It's a weird, it's a weird oxymoron or whatever you want to say, because it's very ego driven because you have to sort of have enough ego to say like, I think I'm funny enough to write a script for a TV show like the Simpsons. Totally. But at the same time, then you have to sort of like subsume it to everybody else yeah when it belongs and to i room. and i think that it's not commonly known that like in every sitcom writer's room the first draft gets rewritten completely <laughs> you know like whether it's animation yeah. or live action i mean of course there is like this gradient scale depending on what kind of show it is but like you know it very rarely from my experience and what i've heard that first draft is maintained more than i would say like 40 percent, and you know that's sort of like something that i think you need to just surrender to and on the simpsons it's even less you know i've had i've had scripts on the simpsons my first one was for a show called uh my mother the carjacker which was about homer and his mom reuniting after many years and uh by the time that got on the air uh, I believe there was one thing I had written in my original script that made it to the air. And it wasn't even a line. It was a a visual thing where Homer is, uh, you know, meeting his mom or he's he, he he turns out it's his mom. But he's he's summoned to this like late night assignation to meet somebody and he's under a bridge and he hears a noise that scares him. And then uh, and then he turns his flashlight to a billboard and it's our billboard of our version of the Pep Boys, Manny, Mo and Jack. So he goes like, ah, 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 like all three of those. <laughs> and that was the only thing that made it into the final, the final version, you know? So uh, on Simpsons, everything is rewritten. Like it's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And I'm sure that like, especially when you're a young writer, like, you know, if we're talking about imposter syndrome in some way, I, I feel like the natural reaction is like, okay, but so why am I here then? <laughs> like, what, what do I contribute? <laughs> like, you know, and and I think that like the literal answer is, well, you set the foundation <laughs> like you don't know how, you know, big of a job you did just like putting words to paper. Um, but then, of course, if you scale back and kind of go to what we were talking about earlier, you're part of the team, you're part of the band. And so it's just a team effort, no matter whose name is on it sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so let us transition um, into how you went from someone who was a staff writer to uh, kind of working your way up just by virtue of, you know, staying in the game, being a, a strong and, and funny writer and, um, and then eventually getting to work on shows like F is for Family, where you get to uh, really shape and develop uh, what is going on in a, on a really vast scale. Yeah. Well, uh, F is for Family is such an interesting story because it, it, in many ways, it begins many years before, before even I started working on The Simpsons, after I'd been on uh, all those early shows I worked on, um, Homeboys in Outer Space and uh, Teen Angel were produced by Disney uh, TV. So uh, they offered me my very first uh, kind of overall deal, it was called, which was that it was called a staffing deal, which is that I would be guaranteed for two years to be on the staff of a Disney show. So I was like very excited to take that. And then part of that also was that it was called a, 
I was going to have a blind pilot, which has meant that I was guaranteed to write to get to write a pilot of some kind, depending on you know, no matter what, you know, like I would pitch it and hopefully it would get made or whatever. But even if it didn't, I would still get paid some money. So, um, so my very first pilot that I pitched. Uh, and we took it to CBS and CBS actually said, okay, write the pilot script for it was a, a, a thing based on my family and my relationship with my dad. And it was set back in the seventies and it was about life on a cul-de-sac and the, the kid in the show was based on me and the father in the show was based on my dad, who, if you know, if it's your family, uh, is not at all like the father, the Frank Murphy character, Officer family. And my dad was a very quiet man who would, uh, but he would have like resentments and, and he would have a, it would come out in weird ways and he wouldn't yell at us, but he would yell at people at the TV and things like that. So, but I wrote that script and it didn't go. And, but I still held on to it. I loved it. And I felt, I felt that I had given into too much to notes from the network. The network kind of wanted to make it, it was, I mean, it was kind of a tortured process where I had written it as kind of like a single camera show, which is, this is around 1999 when single camera shows were not yet big. Malcolm in the Middle came out and sort of changed all that. But at the time, like if you were writing a, a, a comedy, it had to be like a multi-camera show, like an Everybody Loves Raymond type show. And I didn't want to do that, but they said, change it to that. So I did and I rewrote it and it just was kind of neither here nor there and it just didn't work. And so I always felt like, uh, oh, well, that's the one that got away. Uh, so then many years later, uh, I'd written some other pilots and pitched other pilots, but nothing ever got made. And then uh, I got this call from my agent, and uh, they happened to be representing Vince Vaughn and his production company, which is called Wild West Productions. And they had wanted to do something with Bill Burr. And so they said, they said, they're looking for someone to do, they're developing an animated series around this comedian named Bill Burr. And it's sort of set about, it's set in the 1970s and it's about a family, you know, a suburban family living in the 70s. Would you want to meet with them on it? And I was, yes. I was like, absolutely, yes. I didn't know much about Bill. I had not met Bill. I didn't really know him very well. I was not very big on stand-up comedy at the time, like uh, keeping up with stand-up comedians. So I looked up Bill's stuff on YouTube and I saw some of his work and I realized how funny he was. And I realized at the time that he was also on Breaking Bad. And so I re remembered seeing him on Breaking Bad. Wow, that's that's really funny that your first experience with him is in a dramatic, still comedic, right? Way, but yeah, that's that's right. very yeah, funny. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is actually, to, to briefly interject just of that... Um, that, that very funny, almost backwards introduction to someone. I grew up, uh, and Julia, maybe the same thing was true of you, but Christopher Walken, I knew first and foremost as being the cowbell guy. And so <laughs> I saw him later in serious roles and they would make me laugh because I was just like, he is funny. so not intimidating. I, well, I, I hate to differ with you, Allie, but he was always the rival in Wayne's World 2 for me. So... Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> you was locked in amber for that. That's funny. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Like, I bet people now who watch uh, a lot of comedy will know John Hamm from all how funny he is. Oh, my gosh. On, you would love like, to hear uh, you say like that. Like Kimmy, 
Kimmy Schmidt, and uh, I, I just watched the new Rock, yeah. that new interactive Kimmy Schmidt movie, which Me is hilarious. Too. He's great in so Thirty Rock. He's so funny. And then if you back now, you know, because it's been so it's been quite a while now since Mad Men was on. If you go True. back and watch Mad Men, you'd be like, wow, it's hard to see this guy as being serious. Uh, but anyway, but he actually, so this funny. is a quick, sorry, quick John Hamm fact. Sure. <laughs> he started uh, in doing comedies because he, his first like IMDb credits are on the Sarah Silverman program. And he was like, his hair was really long ah. and he was kind of like halfway between shaves and so deep in his heart he wants to be with the comedy people and then he just got whisked away that's right so i, I just had to say <laughs> yeah it's funny because i of remember course, feeling at course. the time because i i first saw him of course in Mad Men, and he's so great in Mad Men, and he's so this character he played don draper is so tortured and so dark and you know hardly ever funny and then when he started doing all these crazy things during in between seasons, I would feel like if I was Matthew Weiner, I'd, I'd say, like, stop doing crazy stuff. <laughs> you know, you're going to ruin Mad Men. Yeah. But uh, I mean, yeah, he, he's so but he's so funny. He's so great. Anyway, but um, enough about him. But uh, and he was and he was great on The Simpsons, too. I got to direct him when he did The Simpsons. Oh, wow. So, uh, very, so very cool. nice guy. But Bill, so then I met with Bill and Peter Billingsley, who is, runs Vince Vaughn's company and is an executive producer on the show. And we just hit it off right away. And we told stories about our dads. And he talked about his dad. And uh, so much of the qualities of the Frank Murphy character are based on, um, you know, Bill's dad. Like the catchphrase, I'll put you through that fucking wall, comes you know verbatim from Bill's dad. And then the stuff that I told him about my dad... Uh, really made him laugh, and, and I told a story about my dad that uh, that Bill later told me because that's that's the thing, and that's the day, that's the thing when you said that made me realize that I won't, you know you're the guy to do this thing with me, is that my dad, like I said, would would hold in, he would internalize his anger and take it out in weird places, especially on people on TV. So uh, there used to be an ad all those years ago for uh, a cigar brand called White Owl Cigars. And the actor in it was a guy who would sit there very smugly holding this cigar in his hand. And you can, if you, if anyone wants to see it, just Google or go to YouTube and uh, search White Owl Cigar ad and it'll come up in this like weird YouTube thing, a compilation of a bunch of TV ads from like 1972. But anyway, um, the guy sits there and he goes, he goes, you may not smoke White Owl cigars now, but if you take one puff, you will. And he goes like, we're going to, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. That <laughs> oh was the phrase. Like, we're going to get you. <laughs> right. And he says it in such a weird, weird kind of smug way. And uh, we're watching it. We were watching it during a baseball game, a Mets baseball game one day. And my dad, he literally called back at the TV and the guy goes, we're going to get you. And my dad goes, you're not going to get me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so, so I told that story to Bill and my brothers and I, we still remember that to this day. Like we all looked at each other like, wow, what's going on with that? You know? And so I told Bill that story and he really laughed. And so uh, we tried to work, we've tried to work that, that exact bit into Epster family like so many times. And then we kept having I mean, to cut it because it was like kind of like, kill your darlings kind of moments where it was like it just didn't work it was in a bunch of scripts it never made it in but it's finally in the new season of extra family that's coming out on june 12th and bill does it bill bill plays the you know does it and i play the part uh, i got to play the part of the guy on the tv the, the oh, cigar guy God. so uh yeah <laughs> so, so we finally came full circle but anyway <laughs> uh, we had that conversation and that became like him deciding yeah this is the guy 
to do it, you know. So we then we then got got down to sort of just talking a lot about this and and what this character would be and what this family would be. And um, over the course of many months, when Bill was out of town, we wouldn't meet, but we'd meet up like every every couple of weeks. And I'd present what I had, and I'd write some stuff up, and he'd say, "This is good. This is good. Or how about this? This could be that." And we ended up pitching it around, and we ended up uh, writing a script. Actually, we wrote a we wrote a full script that we then took to the pitch at Netflix, and we pitched it to Netflix, and then we said, "Here's the show." And it also helped that Bill was already known to Netflix because he had some specials on there, and uh, we pitched it with them, and uh, we left the script behind, and then we waited like a couple of days later. They called us and said yes, they liked it and they wanted to do it, and that was the first thing that I. The, the first piece of development that I had done that finally like made it through, Amazing. you know, wow. got through to being made. Yeah. Uh, and then we, from then it was it's such a long process. Sometimes it took almost a year to sort of put all the deals together and find an animation, find an animation house and an animation style that we wanted to do. And it was so exciting and very thrilling to sort of be at the beginning of a show like this and sort of create a world and, and we wrote six episodes for the first season. And uh, you think The Simpsons has been so nice to me, too, because part of me was sort of like a little bit of a be careful what you wish for kind of thing, because I was like, I got my own show. I got my own show. But then I was like, oh, well, well I have to quit like the greatest job of all time <laughs> you know, of to, do, <laughs> to do six episodes for Netflix, which was Netflix was just getting started at the time when when they ordered our show. It was they ordered it in. um it was like the fall of 2013. And I think maybe all they had on the air of Netflix that in terms of original shows at that time were probably house of cards and probably orange is a new black. And that might've been it. And they had Bojack was in development, but it hadn't come out yet. So there was really kind of a taking a flyer on this unknown thing, but uh, at the Simpsons, Al and uh, Jim Brooks, our ultimate boss was so, were so nice to me. And I'd been there for many years by that point. I'd been there for like, 13 years or something so they let me take like a break so i w- kind of went like a like a sabbatical in a way like i went away for a couple of months and just took an unpaid vacation to run the uh run the writer's room at episode family uh and then i came back after that while we did all the editing and the animation was done i kind of went back to work at the simpsons and that's how it's worked ever since then so then we, we did the six episodes and it went well and they picked us up for a second season and a third season and a fourth season and each time they, they we, we get picked up, uh, I just go back to them and they go, is it okay if I do this again? You know, and every time they've said yes. So now I sort of, whenever I get, when a new season of episode only gets ordered, I get to go take like a five month or so a break from The Simpsons and go off and run the writer's room for episode for family and then come back. That sounds like a dream. Yeah, that's so unheard of. I can't think of any other (laughs) TV show in production that would be like, go and do it. And I know that you're not the only one that's been able to kind of bounce around. I know Megan Amram was also doing The Good Place and kind of back bouncing around back and forth between The Simpsons and that show, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. And uh, and one of our other uh, writers uh, is getting ready to do his own show and some other people have done it. So, I mean, it helps that the show Simpsons has now been on for 31 years and, and we have a very large staff. And so they've been very great about letting some of us do that kind of thing. If if you have a show of your own that you've, you've created or, you know, or, or a movie. Uh, one of Tim Long, uh, you know, wrote a movie that uh, that he went and took some time off to work on that. And so. Uh, it's been really great. I mean, it's great for morale, too, of the staff because we get to go and sort of do a different thing and, in a way, kind of recharge the batteries and then come back 
refresh to the Simpsons when we come back too. So I can't thank them enough. They've been so, so nice and so, so great to me to let me do all this. And aside from the room etiquette and the need for teamwork and yes and mentality, what are some things that you learned from your experience at The Simpsons that you were able to bring with you to FS for Family? And if you don't mind a two-part question, what are some things that you have specifically and solely learned from your experience from FS for Family? Well, it's a great a great two-part question. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll answer the, I'll answer the first part first. <laughs> the first part was, what have I learned from the Simpsons? Well, I think what I learned from the Simpsons creatively is, is uh, and if you watch FS for Family, uh, you know, they, they couldn't be different shows in many ways. Because FS for Family, you know, storytelling-wise, we're, we're serialized. We have arcs, which we don't do on the Simpsons. Of course, but I think what what I took from The Simpsons is, in terms of the writing process and the and the way the room is run, is to first of all let the get a really great group of writers, a great staff, which we do. We have some just absolutely fantastic people on our have been some have been with us since since day one. I'm just going to say their names because they're all so great. So you know, since day one, uh, my our my sort of number two on the show is a guy named Dave Richardson, who was on The Simpsons in, in the early in the Merkin the Merkin seasons of the of The Simpsons. Um, but he's also worked on uh, Malcolm in the Middle and Two and a Half Men. He's a fantastic writer and producer. A guy named Henry Gamel, who is the son of Tom Gamel of Tom, Tom Gamel and Max wow. Cross. Uh, Henry started out as a writer's assistant, and uh, our room the first year was so small that uh, I knew that he was funny uh, and had you know wanted to be a writer. So I let we let him pitch, and his stuff was so funny and so great that uh, ever since season two he's been uh, on the staff. Um, a woman, wonderful uh, woman named Emily Towers was in our first was in the first three seasons. She now works on Family Guy. Uh, there was a great guy named Tom Giannis who worked on the first season of the show. And then, and Bill, of course, was in the room all the time. And there was a great guy named Joe Hislinga, who uh, was, that was his first job as a writer. He's since gone off to do a bunch of great things as well and has stayed with the show since the beginning. And in season two, we added more great writers. Mark Wilmore from The Simpsons joined us in season two and has been with us ever since. Two guys named Eric Goldberg and Peter Tibbles joined the show that year. And they've been with us for a couple of seasons. And just in this past year on season four, for, uh, we also added uh, Valerie Vaughn to the staff, who's fantastic. This year for season four, we added some people left because they got other jobs, and God bless them, they're wonderful. But we added a guy named Sam Stefanik, who also was our writer's assistant, who got moved up to to be a writer. Uh, we added a great team of uh, Luan Thomas and uh, Joe Pierulli, who are great writers, and a great uh, woman named uh, Jessica Williamson, who also was a big star kind of on the moth circuit. Uh, oh, wow. who is oh, yeah. fantastic. She's great. So it's great to have great writers that you can trust that, you know, we're going to be, you know, we're going to do that. I, I don't try to do everything. Uh, you know, I just let them trust them and trust the, trust the, the good writer will write a good first draft. But also I think what I learned from the Simpsons also is an attention to detail uh, and something that has really paid off, which I didn't expect when we first did, did the show was that, there's a lot of people who watch FS for Family who watch it over and over and over and over and over again. So I'll see people on Twitter saying, like, I've now watched it for like seven or eight times, which is wow. unbelievable to me. It makes me so happy. But so uh, the one thing that I think 
that from the Simpsons that we try to fill every square of the frame with something, you know. So we really pay attention to the visuals, to like the sign jokes and whenever. And now, especially because the shows are created in HD. So if you freeze frame it, you'll see everything, you know. So whenever they're reading a newspaper or reading a book or reading a magazine, one of us writes writes the, the copy, you know, we try to make it funny, you know, or there'll be signs like a, the album, album cover. There's a, this season coming up. There's a, um, there's an album, which anyone who's too young might not re- recognize, but they used to make these things that were called party albums, which would be like from uh, African-American comedians like Red Fox or, or Dolomite. If you mm-hmm, saw the movie yeah, with Eddie yeah. Murphy about Dolomite. So, so, we, cool. <laughs> so we have our own, <laughs> we have our own version of that this year, a guy named Chipsy White who's voiced by uh, Chill Mitchell, Daryl Chill Mitchell, who is on Fear of the Walking Dead right now, but it's also a hilarious guy. It's been in a lot of comedy shows. So he's doing that. So so they, they find one of his records, uh, a kid, one of the little kids finds his record and looks at it. And for one second, you see the back of his record. But we had to write like all the album, like all the cuts on the back of the album. So I wrote all those. So it's full of jokes. <laughs> you know, it's just fun to have like all this stuff and, uh, so we really paid a lot of attention to detail in that way. And I, mean, I think the, the main thing, too, uh, in terms of the storytelling and the writing, which I think is the hallmark of The Simpsons, uh, that I believe, you know, I wasn't around for the beginning of The Simpsons, but I, it feels like it's this kind of like amalgam of, of you know, Matt Groening's, you know, very funny uh, you know, drawing style and his his sense of humor, kind of cartoonish sense of humor, along with Jim Brooks and what he brings which is incredible heart and emotion. And then Sam Simon, you know, who was a veteran of, uh, you know, Taxi and, and Cheers and, you know, great, just great sitcom writing structure, which is the heart, you know, and in story. And so for us, it's always about the story and the story, the story drives everything. And so we'll spend so much, so much time at the beginning of the process of working on a script and writing it and rewriting of just making sure that the story makes sense and that the scenes are correct and that the emotional turns are right. And then the comedy will take care of itself. And then we really start concentrating on like the comedy and the jokes, like in later drafts, but it's really just focusing on story and character first. And then, and then we, then we get to like, then the fun part is like, now we get to write funny jokes. Yeah. I I love, I love hearing you say that in that order too, because something that I always say when I talk about, you know, writing comedy is that I think when you start with jokes and you start with the comedy, it ends up being like really flat. Like it ends up being more like a sketch where it's just servicing the joke. But like whenever I'm trying to write a comedy script, I just think of it like, you know, you're baking a cake. So you kind of have to start with like the actual cake, which is like the story structure and the character. In the world, you <laughs> right. know, like exactly. the jokes right. are the frosting. You don't start with the frosting. And I think that, you know, right. if you've made, if you've done your homework and made a good show that had strong characters, then yeah, like the jokes are going to effortlessly come out of them much in the way that they do on The Simpsons. You know, like Homer is a joke machine because we understand Homer and his joke machine tendencies are balanced with his heart tendencies. And I think it just needs to all be singing together. So um, yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're exactly right. And I think, I think too, like the way I mentioned that, again, I wasn't around for the beginning of The Simpsons, but like it's a kind of a, a a push and pull of these three sensibilities that made the Simpsons what it is. Uh, and if, if it was all one, then it wouldn't be as good if, you know, whatever. So I think a very similar way with Epstein family, I, you know, I come from 
come from, you know, 20 years plus of writing, you know, comedy and writing Simpsons and writing sitcom and, and thinking of like wanting to fill it, fill the page with jokes and making every moment something funny. And Bill Burr, who's absolutely one of the funniest people I've ever known in my life. Uh, and if you've never seen him on stage or, or seen his standup, uh, you should, but he's so funny and he's so great. And his comedy comes from, from observation and, and of real life things. And he would be the one that would often say like, okay, this is too, not even say this is too funny, but he would say like, this is too sitcom or this is too, too much like a sitcom or it, it, it sounds too much like it was written by a comedy writer, you know? So he, he was the one, he's always the one who's there sort of pulling the reins back a little bit on, on something. And he'd say like, here I am again, shooting down the funny joke, you know, but, but he's always right. His instincts are always right. And there's lots of times that we had stuff that we thought was, oh my God, it's so, but it's so funny. It's so funny. He'd be like, yeah, but it's not real or it, you know, it's too, it, you know, it pushes, it goes over the line. So, you know, the first three seasons of the show, uh, Bill was in the writer's room, I'd say probably 90% of the time, which is an amazing thing for someone with such a huge career as he has, uh, you know, in, in stand-up. And for those first couple of seasons, he would largely put his touring schedule on hold and he wouldn't be on the road at all. Or he would do like a weekend here or there or something like that. But as we got into the fourth season, like his just his career was just blowing up in so many different directions. He was doing movies and uh, he's in this great movie coming out soon. It's one with uh, Pete Davidson that Judd Apatow made. That's also coming out the same day as Episode Family uh, season four comes out June 12th. And so he was he had to be taken away from, uh, you know, he couldn't spend as much time with us in the writer's room for season four. But he still contributed a huge amount. He would he would, you know, send in his notes or we get him every once in a while and he'd still get amazing jokes in the show. But then I had to find myself being like, I have to call on my own inner Bill Burr, you know, <laughs> season four and say like, okay, what would Bill say right here? He'd say, yeah, you know, this joke is probably too jokey. Right. 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 You know? So, um, yeah. So that, but I think, I think, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see when everybody gets to watch the new season. If you think we pulled it off, but I, I think we did. And uh, the new season comes out on the 12th. Yes. June 12th, June 12th. June twelfth, yes. Um, yes. I am very excited, and there there were some things that were uh, very much teased and set up that uh, yes. that if the show had been not picked up, it would have been devastating. So I'm very very <laughs> grateful. <laughs> and you know, it's a it's it's a nice thing too, just because uh, when everybody is sheltering in place, and uh, you know. Uh, there's one hand uh, where you're th- where some creatives are thinking like, well, I couldn't possibly, you know, place importance on comedy right now because everything is so dire. But uh, I think overwhelmingly the feeling is like, please give us something to laugh at because the world is so dire. So it'll be <laughs> yeah. such a yeah. such an amount of give well, us something to laugh and- at and not another Disney sing along. <laughs> 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 I can't handle it. Yeah, we're so excited. I think the season is going to be great. The one thing that we, we were we were waiting and waiting to like let everyone know is that our our big uh, our big guest star for the season, playing the part of Frank's father, Bill Burr's character's father, is is the amazing uh, Jonathan Banks from Break, Breaking Bad. It all comes Ball back Saul. to Breaking so Bad, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were so thrilled to get him. Yeah, and he's such a wonderful man. I mean, I'd never met him before, and we got him largely through 
you know, we, we had kind of knocked our heads against the wall. We had, we had gone after a couple of other big names that we thought we were close to getting. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And, and we couldn't find anybody who, who could do the part or was available to do the part. And then um, Jonathan had worked with Peter uh, Billingsley and, and Vince uh, Vaughn on a movie a couple of years ago. So uh, they they thought of him and they're like, what about Jonathan Banks? I was like, oh, my God, he'd be incredible. <laughs> and it just so happened that it just worked out that when it was time, we were close to the end. It was like it, it got to be towards the end of fall, September, October. We were like, we've got to get somebody to, to voice this part soon because we're, the animation is starting to come in and we've got to get somebody to do it. And it was right around the time that he was finishing up his work on the most recent season of Better Call Saul. So he was going to be back here from New Mexico and, and he did it and, and he came in and he was just a delight, just a pure wow. delight. Such a wonderful guy. He seems like the best. Yeah, he has the best voice. And I actually yeah. just watched Breaking Bad for my first time start to finish during this oh, pandemic. Boy. And it was a bad idea because it is so dark. <laughs> but it was also yeah. intoxicating and wonderful and incredible. But I, uh, you know, it's funny to watch a show that is still relatively new in terms of we have the internet and memes. And so I had not had any spoilers or anything but I got to re I got to kind of dig into all the internet reactions after having watched it because it's all documented. And everyone just loved him so much. And and this quote uh or this scene in Breaking Bad that happened that I like have ingrained in my brain is when um Jesse asks, like, Am I the guy? And Jonathan Banks responds just like you're not the guy. I had a guy, but now I don't. You're not capable of being the guy. You are not the guy. And it like made me laugh so hard. And then my boyfriend immediately was just like, did you, did you just watch the you're not the guy scene? And he like, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah. I I know that the the uh, amount of, of of humor in his seriousness yeah. will will be brilliant yeah. on the show because F is for Family yeah. is, is really dry. He's so and it's, good. You know, yeah, yeah, he really is. And all the voice actors, Laura Dern and everyone in the show. Justin Long, so... oh my God. We have yeah. such a cast. Yeah, the main cast, you know, Bill, of course, Laura, Justin Long, uh, Haley Reinhardt, you know, who was a singer mostly and still is an amazing singer. She came to us. She's perfect. She plays Bill. She's amazing and has gotten so good. Debbie Derryberry, who's like one of the great voiceover pros of all time, is plays multiple parts in it. Mo Collins, Trevor Duvall, Dave Keckner, Kevin Farley, Phil Hendry, who if you don't know Phil Hendry's work from his work on radio or podcasting, is one of the great comedians of all time. Uh, and in this season, uh, we have a bunch of new uh guest cast we have amy sedaris is in the show this amazing. year amazing so great uh joe para i don't know if you know joe para yes yes from his show oh, called he's talking so good. To joe, yeah joe, joe para talks, talks with you, you. he's yeah. in it he's so great That's I, amazing. I wrote a part just for him uh, i wrote a part this part is going to be kind of like he's like the anti frank murphy he works at the <laughs> the other airline at the uh at where, the, where frank works at the airport so he's like the anti frank like a very very even keeled soft-spoken guy He's so fantastic. Uh, he does, he's only in some couple later episodes, but I think he could be a big deal, a, bi a major character going forward. He's great. Um, uh, Rich Summer, who played Harry Crane on Mad Men, oh, is in a couple episodes this year. He's uh, so great. It's just, we're so thrilled with everybody. Uh, like I said, Chill Mitchell, 
Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out, but it, it, uh, Will Sasso from Mad TV is in it. Oh, He's how hilarious. Funny. And yeah, so we're we're so thrilled with everything, and I think the season is mostly about a lot of stuff, but a lot about this baby who's getting ready to come, and uh, and we're just so so thrilled for it, and we've been working on it, you know, for almost a year and a half. So we're ready for everybody <laughs> right. to see it. Yeah, that's so great. Well, congrats on that. Um, and it's so crazy that it's uh, launching the same day as Bill's other special, too. It'll be a two for two. Yeah. <laughs> well, gosh, I really wish that this were able to be a two-part episode. So maybe we could have you back at some point because uh, it was so much fun talking to you today. I'd be thrilled. That'd be wonderful. Great. Um, uh, so everybody, make sure you watch the show uh, on Netflix. It's such a great show. I'm sure you've all watched it. But if you haven't, make sure you check it out uh, and catch the new season. Um, and then is there anything else you'd like to plug, your social media, any other projects before we take off? Uh, no, I mean, that's it. Simpsons is still uh, – well, we just ended our last – our previous season. So we'll be back in the fall with some great stuff. Uh Episode Family, June twelfth. Uh, my social media on Twitter. My my Twitter name is Mike Price in LA, and uh, <laughs> there's also a Episode Family Twitter that I mostly run, which is called FIFF Netflix, <clears throat> which is like our writers account. But I, I put up a bunch of stuff. If you're into the show, that's where you should look for stuff because I put up we put up stuff all the time, like kind of behind the scenes stuff and little, you know, little sneaky things here and there oh that's so, great um, and yeah. can i ask yeah. one last question that may tease our part two episode Certainly. um i couldn't sure. help but notice that you've also written on some star wars properties may i ask yeah did you write oh, at yes. the ranch <laughs> i did i did oh i i uh i did well i mean uh yeah very briefly i got to work on uh these lego star wars shows and uh which came about a little from, from Simpsons and, but also, um, yeah, so I got to do those. And then the other thing I got to do, which I hope someday will be seen is the great, the great unseen star Wars comedy show, which is called detours, uh, which yeah. was, uh, created, created by, uh, Seth Green and Matt Senreich from uh, robot chicken. And I got to work on, I wrote an episode of it, but it was a weird thing. We got to work all together uh, we spent a week and a half at the Skywalker Ranch uh, working on this, working. We spent a day with George Lucas, Amazing. pitching our ideas to George wow. Lucas. Um, so cool. And we got to live live at Skywalker Ranch. This is back back in 2012 when we did this now. Uh, and, and our group of writers included myself and people who were like like superstars from Robot Chicken, Tom Root, Tom Shepard. Zeb Wells and a, a, a young a young writer just starting out who had a huge career in front of her named Rachel Bloom. Oh wow! Uh, who went on, of course, to create Crazy Ex Girlfriend. So she was in our she was in our group there. Jessica Gao was another great writer. Just just a great group. And I got to spend a week and a half. Brendan Hay uh, ran that show. He's an amazing guy. He runs um, another show for Netflix called The Harvey Girls, um, among other things. An amazing group and. Uh, an amazing show that you know has sort of been uh, kept in the in the vault now uh, after uh, Lucas ended up selling to Disney uh, because it kind of makes fun of and takes the takes the uh, piss as you say out of like a lot of Star Wars stuff. So uh, I understand why they might not want to put it on right now, but uh, someday I hope that it will be seen because it was really, 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 really funny. I mean, I That's bet it awesome. will. You never know with Disney Plus content; they got to fill that hole. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, I'm glad we could touch on that and be sure. at the ranch. My God. Yeah. It's oh, just, my God. That was an, what a what dream. an experience that was. Yeah. That was incredible. I've, I've actually I've been there only once to like have lunch with a friend of my mom's and I'll never forget it. It's like a memory forever burned in my brain of yeah. just like, you know, you've got this beautiful hill and these like roaming cows and Ewok Lake. It's insane. I think people yeah. don't know the half of how weird it is and how great it is. <laughs> and I don't. Uh, incredibly <laughs> unforgettable, unforgettable experience working there. And then I got to go there one, one other time, like a year later, because one of our Lego shows, we mixed it at Skywalker Sound, so we got to be there in Amazing. the in the Skywalker Sound room with Matthew Wood, who is one of the um, one of the guys who does the the sound for the actual Star Wars movies. So it was just unbelievable. Very amazing. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. We would love to have you back. And um, Julia, where can people find you? Well, thanks so much for asking. I'm at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. You could find me at Allie Gertz and all the things, and you could find us at Simpsons Pod. And Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We're a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash join to contribute. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Smell you later. (laughs) (laughs) MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.